Welcome to AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get support and guidance through the chaos of parenting. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. I hope you're having a fabulous day. We are going to get into a topic that I have not yet covered, but needs a lot of coverage. And I'm actually really glad that Patsy reached out to me. Patsy has been a long time AT Parenting Survival parent. Um, she has been following my work and I have enjoyed helping her and seeing her journey progress. And she reached out to me and said, hey, could I come on your podcast and talk about selective mutism? And I thought, oh my gosh, I have not had any episodes on selective mutism. I have no videos on selective mutism and that's not cool. And she is the person to talk to one because she's an awesome person, but two, she has taken her own child's struggles and her own battle to advocate for her child, to get him the proper treatment. And she has turned that into giving back to others. And I love hearing stories like that, where we take our lemons, we make lemonade and we change the world because of what happened to us. I mean, that's kind of how I live my life. Um, one drama in my own family becomes a lesson to everybody else. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was hysterical to me, <laughs> but she is the international coordinator for her state for selective mutism. Um, so she's a state coordinator and she has really a wealth of knowledge on this topic because as you know, if you are a mama bear and you have to try to get the help that you need for your child, we become experts at this stuff, even more so than the experts. And I'm saying that as a mom, not as a therapist. So Patsy was kind enough to come on the show and answer questions, give us all just an understanding of what selective mutism is, what to look for, um, the difference between just being labeled shy versus being selectively mute. There is a huge difference. And unfortunately, kids get missed and misdiagnosed and mistreated because they're they're not being assessed properly or they're being mislabeled. It doesn't even you don't have to have a formal assessment to get what's going on with your child if you just do some research and figure it out. So she talks about how to get your child the proper help, what proper treatment looks like for selective mutism, because it is very specific and um, other modalities just aren't going to work. Selective mutism is very hard to treat. So you really need someone who knows what they're doing. And so she talks about what that looked like, the treatment that she got eventually for her son and what that looked like. Uh, she gives us a zillion resources. So you will definitely not leave this podcast feeling lost and confused about where to go next. If you have a child that has selective mutism or that you think has selective mutism. And I want to thank Patsy for coming on and sharing her wisdom sharing her story, because that's how we all learn through stories and through other people and other parents education. If you want to catch it on YouTube, it is also up on YouTube and you can go to youtube.com slash C slash anxious toddlers 78. That's my YouTube channel. So, and if you're not following me, I might as well do this too. On Instagram, last week I was telling you, whoever listens to me on a regular basis, that Instagram has become my new friend, that I am trying to master Instagram. So that's where a lot of my focus is. So if you go on Instagram, um, you can follow me at Anxious Toddlers. Uh, it's not about toddlers. That's just my name. So 
follow me at anxious toddlers. And I, if you like to see behind the scenes stuff, if you want to see kind of my life, I do a lot of, um, just behind the scenes things on my Instagram stories. And you can check that out in my highlights. If you just want a sneak peek in my family and my life, I'm also posting, I'm going to be posting some videos on IGTV. So definitely want to follow me on Instagram if that is where you live. Okay. Sorry. I got on a social media, uh, rant, (laughs) but here's my interview with Patsy. Well, I want to welcome Patsy to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for letting me speak today. Yeah. So Patsy is a mom um, to a child with selective mutism, and uh, she's an AT parent as well. And she's coming on today because I really feel like we have to have a more in-depth conversation about selective mutism. And she is a perfect person to talk to because She's a mom of a child with selective mutism, and she's also just this huge advocate. But I'll stop talking. <laughs> Patsy, I'll let you introduce yourself and um, maybe give people a little idea of like your background and your story. Sure. Thanks, Natasha. So I have three kids. They're eight, five, and three. They're all super busy. Um, my two boys are both anxious. Um, our five-year-old, when he was about two, we noticed that something was a little bit off. And so we spent about two and a half years really advocating for him, trying to search for answers. What's wrong? How do we help him? Nobody knew how to do that. So after a couple of years, we found the right help. And I started to realize, like, there's nobody out there to speak for my son. And if he doesn't have a voice, I need to be his voice. And I realized it was much bigger than just us. It's this whole community of parents and kids. And it's just a disservice to them to not speak up. So I've become um, an advocate for parents and kids with SM, and I am also uh, one of the Selective Mutism Association state coordinators for Minnesota. Which so is so impressive. Yeah, I just think it's so impressive because I feel like I kind of met you on virtually, like at the beginning of your journey, and yes. just to see like how far you've come um, to the point where, and I love the way that you just said to be a voice, because it's such, it's almost like a literal thing to be a voice yeah. for kids with SM. So, and and I think turning our own struggles into advocacy or making a difference in other people's lives is such the rainbow, you know, for, for all this. So I want to back up and break SM down because selective mutism is definitely not talked about enough. And I think people don't understand it. So can you help people like define that? What is selective mutism? We'll start with the basics. Sure. So a pretty basic definition in layman's terms is selective mutism is an anxiety disorder where a kid can speak you know, pretty comfortably at home and it's normal, but you get them outside of the home somewhere where they're uncomfortable and they're rendered mute. Um, it's off, often fight, flight, or freeze. And for our son, it was freeze. It would just be an absolute blank stare. It looked like he was ignoring people. Um, I think we had four hearing tests in a span of six months because people were concerned that he was having hearing issues. So it's select situations, uh, people where they're just absolutely rendered mute. Yeah. And I think it gets misdiagnosed so much because one, I don't think enough actual mental health professionals understand selective mutism. And two, I think parents often chalk it up to um, being shy or it's misdiagnosed as maybe being on the spectrum or having learning disabilities. I remember when, um, I think I was in undergrad and my sister's son 
was not talking. And my sister was saying to me, you know, they're testing him for like developmental delays and stuff. And I said, why? And she said, and he was probably about five or six at the time. He just doesn't talk. And I said, well, I hear him talking. I hear him talking all the time. And she was like, oh no, he's like completely silent at school. And so I was like an undergrad psych student. And so I looked it up and I'm like, there's something called selective mutism and no one, like not the school, not my sister, like nobody had ever mentioned that word or knew what it was. And it just goes to show, you know, how it happens and how it manifests and people just are clueless. Right. So if somebody has a child who is shy, how can they differentiate between shy and having selective mutism? I love that you asked that question because we have our two boys, our son with selective mutism is actually very extroverted. He is not shy. He's loud. He loves playing with kids. It just recharges him to be around his peers. And then we have our three-year-old who is shy. He's introverted. He likes to play by himself. He's slow to warm up, but he eventually does warm up. So what differentiates the two between the child who is slow to warm up and selective mutism is that kids with selective mutism don't really warm up. So our son went, gosh, two and a half years without speaking to anyone outside the home. And even at times he had a difficult time with us. So no speech at all versus, you know, maybe a little bit slow to warm up. Um, yeah. The other thing that's common with selective mutism is social anxiety disorder. Um, lots of, I guess, uh, feelings and thoughts about what are other people thinking about me? Are they going to hear my voice? Um, our son would say when he was three, people are going to laugh at me. So even at that age, having this fear of that, where our current three-year-old is like, I just don't want to talk to people. Like, yeah. I don't have anything to say to my friend. <laughs> That's a good way to differentiate because I think, yeah, I mean, the shy child is like, who are you? I'm a little nervous yeah. around you. And they, you know, they might evolve to have social anxiety or not. They might just be slow to warm. Like, I don't know what the situation is. Right. And selective mutism, like there is, I mean, with the kids that I've worked with and I mean, I never saw my nephew actually be silent because I was um, not one of <laughs> his silent of circle. Yeah. I was in his inner circle, but the kids I've worked with who have come into my practice, I mean, they are literally silent. So I think if you have a child who, like you said, one is not slow to warm, they never warm, but they're also like literally silent to the point where like, they don't even really, a lot of them don't want to make any sounds at all and they'll stifle it. Yeah. And you bring up Our another good point. Smile. He wouldn't like blow bubbles. He wouldn't, we tried to do like cotton ball races. He wouldn't even breathe where he knew someone could hear him. Yeah. And, and that's a good way to, to differentiate is just that complete silence. Or if a lot of people say, oh, I've never heard him talk and it, it doesn't get better. You know, I mean, it's like it progresses. Right. So, you know, if they're silent in an environment, you know, unless they get some treatment and help, they're, they, they continue to be silent, you know, for the whole school year. So that's another way to look at it. And that's another good misconception that you bring up is like this idea that kids are going to outgrow selective mutism. Um, something we've learned is kids actually grow into it, much like other anxiety disorders. Uh, they can sometimes figure out ways to avoid it or get around it, but generally they grow into it, which means it only habituates and gets worse. Yeah. And the longer you get those habits, you know, hardwired in your brain, the harder it is to, to get them out of that. And I, I don't, do you find that there's like a comorbid condition a lot of times with 
speech issues. You know, I find that maybe like two thirds of the kids I've worked with had some speech issues on top of it. So that's a great question. I know that the Smart Center, which I did provide you the link to them, they have um, actual studies on that. And I do believe there's a high percentage of kids. Our son had an articulation delay, but because nobody would ever, nobody else heard him, I brought it up at his preschool screening, nobody else heard him, they couldn't assess for that. So we did end up going to a childhood language disorders clinic, and he was like in the fourth percentile. But it's a kind of a catch-22. We couldn't do speech therapy because he wouldn't speak. And we couldn't do like the psychological therapy because he wasn't participating in it. So it was really tough to find a starting point. Yeah. So it's a vicious cycle because you really can't get the help because he's not going to talk to get the help or work on that. So you have to work on the anxiety first. Right. Yeah. I have seen a lot of kids. Now there are, there are kids that are coming to mind that I've worked with who, who didn't have any kind of speech issue and still had selective mutism, but a lot, a big chunk of them did where I was like, there's a pattern here. Why, why do all these kids, you know, have some sort of speech issue? And it, it kind of goes back to the social anxiety. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want people to hear, you know, a speech impediment or a stutter or an articulation issue or a processing issue because I don't want them to make fun of me. And so it kind of comes back again to, to social anxiety, you know, is, is fueling a lot of selective mutism, I think. Yeah. So why do you think people wait? Because you don't really see a lot of people getting treatment for their kids with selective mutism until they hit school. Right. So I think my personal opinion is because so many people are telling parents they're just shy. They're adapting to some sort of change because life is always changing. Um, You know, friends and family are saying they're probably being defiant. They're manipulating you. You know, maybe you need better structure at home. Maybe this is sort of a parenting issue. It's a control issue. I think people aren't addressing the root of the problem. So as the mutism is actually, I guess, in my opinion, I don't know what the research says on this, as a symptom of the anxiety. Yeah. That's just the outward symptom. And the deep root causes the anxiety. And I think the biggest reason why people wait is that is not getting addressed Um, on pediatric levels, on school screenings. um, I mean, obviously, most of these kids are totally normal at home, so parents don't see it until the age where they go to preschool or school, and it just sort of gets bypassed as all of these other reasons of something else. Yeah, and that is such a good point because, one, I think a lot of times people misread it as defiance. I've seen it be misinterpreted as defiance. I remember at one time I had a family I was working with and the mom would just be like, she's so rude. You know, she won't say thank you. She won't say hello. Um, She's just completely silent and just stares at people and it's embarrassing and it's rude. And after I started working with her, because this child did talk to me, so selective mutism wasn't on my radar initially, I, I realized that she had SM. And I said, she's not being rude. She's overwhelmed. And so as a parent, and maybe a parent who has their own social anxiety or anxiety in general, it, it can be overwhelming. And I think you can misinterpret it as opposition or as just an embarrassment because it's a reflection on you. Like my child's not speaking and, um, and people are perceiving this as being rude. Right. Right. And Sort of on that topic, when you said the mom said she wouldn't say hi or bye, there are five words that are incredibly hard. Most of the centers that work with kids of SM say don't even, don't work on this until the end. Hello, goodbye, please, thank you, and I'm sorry. 
Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. And we found that with our son, he still has a very difficult time with hello. So we just say, go ahead and give him a wave and he'll wave now. But he still cannot say hello to like teachers, um, grandparents. Sometimes he'll do this silly avoidance thing. And we sort of let that go and try to prompt like, hello, Jello, or something that's fun for him <laughs> to be able to transition into that. But very difficult time. And they say, just push those to the last because you can sort of shape those as the anxiety lessens. That's good for people to hear because I feel like those are the main words that we want people to say. <laughs> and I feel like that's where we started. When we didn't know, that's where we started. And we were like, just say hi. It's just one word. Just do it. Just say hi. I'll give you like $10 million. And it was just <laughs> hard. I know. I was like, we were ridiculous, but we didn't know. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, I think most parents don't know, and there's definitely not enough talk about this. And I think schools don't know, a lot of therapists don't know. And so people don't know what to do with this. And so they say, let's just start with the basics. Let's just start with the high or the thank you. Just at least say thank you. So the other type of parent, you know, I think you get different parenting styles who are just desperate and trying to cope. So you get the ones that are um, angry and defiant and, you know, like they're labeling their child as defiant and they're frustrated. They see it as a behavioral issue. And, I, and I'm just talking about the extremes here, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then um, if you swing all the way over to the other side, you have the parent that, that enables inadvertently and they become the voice literally for their child. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when we first took our son to the speech and language clinic, language clinic, um, they said we had already suspected SM by this point. They were like, yeah, like it's the inability to speak. And it's not due to any other thing, but he does have this articulation delay. Um, But that's not why he's not speaking. So at that point, they had given us a handout that was like, don't speak for your son. And we had, his sister was two years older. We're like, yeah, she does that all the time. But then we realized like we would go in stores and somebody would say hi. And we would say, we would label him. Oh, no, no, that's okay. He doesn't say hi to people. He's shy. Yes. So when that started happening, we were like, oh. Oh, that's us. We're enabling him instead of encouraging him to be brave. You don't have to say hi, but go ahead and give him a wave, you know, something nonverbal. Give him a thumbs up for a hello sort of thing. We were saying, nope, that's okay. He's shy, labeling that for him to say, you know, I'm the shy kid. I don't have to talk. And so that's, we realized, ooh, we're doing that. (laughs) You know, and I think probably most parents do that because, that's just an intuitive thing to do, you know, to say, you know, one, it can be embarrassing. I know mm-hmm. um, with my social anxiety, a lot of times with my youngest daughter, when she would do things that she was just very like a ham and it would just mortify <laughs> me and she had no filter, you know, and so she would, didn't obviously did not have selective mutism, but she would just be like, you know, why is he so big? Why is he so bald? You know, and I'd just be like mortified. So, I mean, as anxious parents, we can be overwhelmed with, with our child's behavior. And so we'll quickly swoop in or we're empathizing with our child so much that we want to swoop in as well and right. just say, he's shy. He's not going to talk to you because we want to rescue them because, or we want to rescue ourselves from the awkwardness. But then the child with selective mutism is hearing that. And then I think they identify with that. And then yeah. they hang on to that label as like a warm comfort, a warm barrier that they can proudly wear of I'm shy. So this is okay. Just don't talk to me. And right. nobody want, nobody's trying to do that. But I think that that's the message that we send. Um, right. when we do that. So if, if parents are listening, have kids with selective mutism and 
we'll get into treatment and stuff in a second, but let's, since we're already here with this topic, how do, how should parents handle that in the moment if they have a child that's currently not talking outside of the home? So for us, we had tried to start, um, if I can pop real quick, tried to start with therapy that didn't work with a therapist. And then we found a specialist who did, and she actually recommended giving up the verbal stuff, starting with totally nonverbal things, handing a credit card to the cashier, um, receiving a receipt, uh, waving hello or goodbye. And we honestly had to start with waving to people on the sidewalk through our house windows. We couldn't even go outside and wave. So it was a very gradual process of, you know, let's wave to the person there. Let's open the garage door and wave from inside the garage. Let's take three steps and wave. Let's take four steps and wave. So it was very gradual for us. Um, waving in the car, doing those types of things first. When we got to the point where we were almost ready to talk and people would say something and they would say, it's okay, he's shy. I would say, no, he's not shy. He's working on being brave. So go ahead and give them a thumbs up for a hello. Oh, I love that. That's what we would do. I love that. Yeah, it was very empowering for him and us to be able to have a little bit of control over those words and building his confidence. Like, yeah, he's working on being brave and he can do, you know, a nonverbal, a wave, a head nod, a thumbs up. Um, we actually started with hand waves behind his back because it was too hard <laughs> for him. Somebody's going to see me waving. So we did a lot of upfront work with nonverbals, which to us was like, you know, mind blowing. Of course, this makes sense. Talking has always been too hard. Yeah. And taking it one step at a time because yes. Sometimes we see a problem and we, we see the solution and we don't see the in-between. And so, you know, my child's not talking to anybody. You know, that's not typical. That's not normal. I can't have that. And then the, the way that progress would look is that he will be completely, you know, social and he'll talk to everybody and there's yeah. no in-between. And so I, I have found sometimes with the parents that I've worked with, and I totally get it, having my own kids with anxiety, the frustration if you know, as a therapist, I'm excited that they're waving non-verbally and they're like, uh, okay, you know, so what, you know, how about him talking? And it's this progress is a journey. And so I love the way you talked about that you'd wave inside your house or he'd wave behind his back. And every little step is a step to build his confidence, a step to empower him and a step in the right direction. And that goes for any child with any kind of anxiety or OCD is progress is measured in centimeters. It's so tiny, but you have to, you have to kind of empower them slowly. Right. I feel like we're snails running marathons, but that is okay <laughs> because there's a finish line and that's where we are. We're headed toward the finish line. So. Yeah. And that's actually how you build lifelong skills because if they are forced to talk or if they are, you know, put a spotlight is put on them or if the therapy approach is ag aggressive, there's a, there's like a trauma related to that where it, it's not their pace. It's not what they wanted. It's what everybody else around them wanted. And so I feel like it doesn't stick as much with any kind of anxiety or OCD stuff. It's when we empower them to do it themselves, like you were talking about, they, their self-esteem improves and they feel good about it. Okay. So let's get into diagnosis and treatment. So a lot of people are like, where do I go to even get an assessment or a diagnosis of this? Right. So we, we lived in a town of about 90,000 people and nobody had even ever heard of selective mutism until we started bringing in like copies of, you know, the DSM diagnosis 
um, and slapped it down and said, our, our son has this. So ultimately, we got the diagnosis from a local psychologist. Um, we ended up traveling three hours to find a specialist because the treatment was so effective. The first psychologist we saw for about four and a half months, two to three times a week, and it was just a very unstructured play therapy. And so she had really been approaching it as, you know, your son went through some sort of traumatic event. Maybe we can pinpoint it. Maybe we can't. We did have a, a baby around the time that he was born. So everyone was saying it was the baby. It was too traumatic for him sort of thing. And never really honing in on, he's always been an anxious kid ever, ever since the time he was six weeks old. So our- you know, I'm glad you brought that up, not to interject, but I'll totally forget this and you're going to go on. Because I, 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 I mentally meant to bring that up, that a lot of times school and therapists will think there's a trauma. Yes. And that's kind of a dangerous assumption because I know I had worked with a boy who had selective mutism and the school um, convinced the mom that, that somehow he must have been sexually abused or had some severe trauma to make him not talk because he was actually quite old. He was probably about nine, but he had he had pockets of selective mutism his whole life. And everybody was spending their time and energy looking for this abuse that did not exist. So that's just a good thing to highlight. Um, I mean, your trauma, the therapist thought a baby, people will try to look and a lot of like maybe traditional therapists will try to look for the origin and they're missing the boat on that. So that. I just want to interject because I know. And at first we were like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But then we looked back and we were like, well, from the time he could walk, he was terrified of walking on glossy floors, like in grocery stores. He wouldn't do that. He would run away from us and hide and he wouldn't be able to call out. And I just assumed he was playing hide and seek and he was really, really good at hide and seek. <laughs> um, we actually had to shut down target. Oh, <laughs> so no. We could find him. Um, but yeah, we had just assumed, like everybody else, that it was either a defiant phase or some sort of trauma that he just stopped talking. And then we realized, well, no, he had acquired his language around the same time. And he never talked to anyone outside of our house. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to find a smoking gun. I think that, it, and, I, and I keep saying this, but that goes for a lot of anxiety. I think a lot of times we're looking for the smoking gun and you can waste a lot of money in therapy with the wrong therapist yep. because you can have a therapist who's looking for a smoking gun and they're not going to find one or like unstructured play therapy for anxiety or selective mutism or OCD. Got to throw that in there. Yeah. You might as well just take your money and burn it in your kitchen sink. Yeah. And that's what it felt like for us. We were paying thousands of dollars for this. Our copays were quite expensive thousands of dollars. And our son loved it. He got to go play these games where she said, you never have to talk to me if you never want to kind of thing. So he was like, can I go play with the doctor now? Why? Yes, you can. And there goes $60. (laughs) (laughs) Now play therapy is great. I think for trauma and for like divorce and grief. So there is, you know, there are some really good issues that play therapy can work with, but selective mutism and anxiety and OCD really need um, a more structured approach. Right. Right. Yeah. So the specialist that we saw works with, um, two theories. She works with the SCAT approach from the smart center. And then she used like the Kurtz brave buddy models. He, um, modified PCIT, PCIT therapy, um, uh, directly for verbalization for selective mutism. Um, and it uses a lot of positive reinforcement, extrinsic 
rewards, not awards. Um, and I know there's a big debate about that, but we found with the reward system, as soon as our son got verbal, that in itself was a reward and we could pull those external motivators and he didn't even notice. I mean, he was yeah. five at the time. So that's probably a lot harder to do with say a 15 year old. But for us, that was just so worth it to take those two approaches that were very structured. They have benchmarks. They had, um, like graduated approaches. We're going to start with, you know, eye contact and waving. We're going to work all the way up to free communication with any person in any situation, which we're still working on. But yeah, yeah. the right type of structured therapy, um, just from the experts really helped us to, to get all the tools that we needed as parents to help our son. Yeah. And I think rewards are, are key. <laughs> I do. And I, I, I know there is a debate about that. I actually talked to Ross Green, you know, who is really mm-hmm. you know, the king of don't, you know, right. don't give your kids rewards for things. And, um, and even he agreed when I was talking to him that as long as the child's, you know, building those skills and they're motivated, I can't be as eloquent as he described it, but um, that that's okay. Cause I was saying in my treatment, you know, I, I'm constantly giving rewards out for kids doing exposures or doing things that are challenging. And, you know, eventually we move away from those rewards. We space them out. We make them harder to earn. And like you said, ultimately the the biggest reward is not having the anxiety, not having selective mutism, not having OCD symptoms. Like that's the ultimate reward. So, um, it's, it's using those rewards as a carrot. You're asking a kid, in my opinion, to jump off a cliff and that there may or may not be a parachute that's going to pop out. That's how they feel. And you're not going to want to jump off a cliff, you know, but if somebody said, you know, I promise you there's a parachute and there's also $100,000 on the bottom, you know, <laughs> all right, I'll try. <laughs> but then well, and that's kind of the way we look at it. This is really hard work for them. So there has to be some sort of, you know, we go to work, we get a paycheck. So this is sort of their work and their paycheck. And I mean, our son gets to pick and he's on board when he, you know, gets 10 minutes of Mario or, or whatever it is, a lollipop for speaking to five people in the store. When he gets to pick the reward and be a part of the process, he's more motivated to get it done. And he does a really good job. Yeah. And then he sees, you know what? That wasn't as hard as I thought. And you also are like, you're kind of re rewarding, this is going to sound redundant, but like you're rewarding the reward center, you know, so you're like, you're making a causal link between I speak and something really fun and exciting is happening. And my neurons are snapping away saying, oh, lollipop. And it's attached to speaking. And so I'm making this causal relationship, Mm -hmm. a feel good moment instead of an anxiety moment, which eventually is in and of itself, you can just pull back and those feel good feelings are there. Right. And ultimately, I see kids just so, so happy to get rid of their anxiety. That's the ultimate reward. But kids are in the here and now. They only see today. They don't see like, you know, you don't want to be 20 and not being able to talk. They're not going to get that. So even adults, even adult therapists often will use kind of fun rewards uh, as a, to, to gamify it and make it cool. Right. So I doubt that a lot of people are going to be able to find a therapist who does all those approaches. Where, where can people start? 
So I would look on the SMA website, which is selectivemutism.org. You can start there. There's a link to providers and a link to SMA state coordinators. Sometimes there are providers who don't register with the SMA, but uh, sometimes the coordinators just know, hey, this therapist works with SM kids, or this person is familiar with anxiety, CBT, and exposure therapy in little kids or teenagers or whatever it is. So reach out to one of us. We will email you back as soon as we can and try to figure out who to connect you to. Yeah. And therapy, I don't know what your experience is, but I feel like therapy can be very um, slow going at first. And I know that as a therapist, sometimes there's so much pressure. You know, the, the few kids that I've treated with selective mutism, because it's, it's pretty rare. I don't see it often in my practice, but the ones that I have seen, I felt so much pressure from the parent that I almost you know, whenever I get a child with selective mutism, I'm almost traumatized where I'm like, I don't know if I can help you. You know, it's hard. Because there, I think a lot of times parents aren't educated on selective mutism. They are so upset and nervous about what's going on. And then when I get excited and say, he blew bubbles today, or you know what, he was able to vocalize um, the uh, sound or, you know, he made sound effects in my story. They look at me like, I'm ridiculous, you know, and is he, did he talk to you though? Did he talk to you? How long do you think this is going to take? How many sessions is this going to take? What's the prognosis? And I start to feel panicky myself. And so I think it's good for parents to realize that, you know, your therapist is making progress slowly by getting them to do these small steps that will lead to big results. But when, when you put your own anxiety on it or you pressure your child, or even if you pressure the therapist, it's going to slow down the progress. Yeah. Put that out there. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. And I feel like we were maybe that way. We like gave the therapist 12 weeks, but then we were like, oh, our son stopped talking at home. So that's when we sought out a specialist. I, my best advice to parents is skip all of that. Don't go to a local therapist who has never worked with a kid who has an SM. Um, you can also contact some of the bigger centers, um, Thriving Minds in Michigan, CMI in New York City. We worked with them. They're absolutely fabulous. And the Smart Center, I believe there might be centers in um, Oklahoma City, somewhere in California, maybe Washington. You have to do some research on that. But some of those big, big centers that help kids specifically with SM actually will do Skype calls back and forth. And oh, I think, that's cool. Yeah, it's so nice. Um, of course, most insurances don't pay for it, which kind of stinks, but it's definitely well worth it to come out with the skills to help your child because not only are you learning about the SM skills, this is going to help with the anxiety over the span of your child's lifetime or however long it takes for your child to get the skills to adapt. Yeah, I, I agree. I think if you have the financial means to do it, definitely going to one of those big centers, um, Child Mind Institute is CMI, yeah. um, a smart I don't Does know that. Center Selective Mutism Anxiety Research Treatment Center. Where is, where is that located? That is in Pennsylvania. Okay. And I believe Kurt's psychology is in New York. He used to head up CMI, but he broke off. Okay. You're like the expert yeah. in SM. <laughs> I researched a ton. And part of my goal as an advocate and an SMA coordinator is to be able to push this information out to where people can find it because I feel like I searched and searched and searched thousands of hours just trying to find information, watch videos, listen to podcasts, and it was really hard to find information. Yeah. I, I just don't think there's a lot of information out there, which is kind of crazy. And so 
you have sent me all the links. And so I will, I will leave links all below so that parents know how to navigate this. Um, I, yeah, I do agree. I feel like maybe finding, if you can, kind of, like, did you went to New York for, for? Yeah, so we flew to New York for a five-day intensive with our son. By that time, we had already seen our therapist here in St. Paul, Minnesota, which was a three-hour drive for us. Um, so we actually did end up getting our insurance to cover the New York trip which was very difficult. That was, I'm an advocate for that too, helping parents get this insurance coverage. There's lots mm -hmm. of exceptions and whatnot because it's not covered under traditional plans and most people don't even have providers in network. Anyway, so we went out there for five days. We already had the skills that we needed. We were already starting to do effective exposures. So at Child Minds, not only did they do exposures with our son, like really, really fun stuff. We went to like huge candy stores and we were asking all the employees, you know, what, what's your biggest gummy bear? Can you show me? Can you help me reach the black candy on the top shelf type thing? We were doing that, but my husband and I were also getting training on how to lead our own fade-ins to help teach teachers and our therapists at home and so just this big network of parent knowledge and exposure-based therapy for our son. And we actually um, got a lot of financial aid from them. They do have a financial aid program. So that was pretty incredible to be able to participate in that and to get those skills as parents. And I feel like part of why we have had so much success this last year is because we've been doing the therapy almost daily. So our therapist taught us to be the therapist, and that's what we do. We go out and we do these exposures. We do the CBT that goes along with it. You know, how hard is it going to be? Is it going to be this hard, this hard, this hard, this hard? If it's too hard, we don't do it. We come back for it because we know we can't do this hard, but we know we can do this hard, this hard, this hard, and this hard. So yeah, I like, I like the, the visual. Nobody yeah. will see it on the podcast, but you're doing it with your hands, which I, I really like. So... If, and I know there are parents who are listening to this, who there's a lot of parents in the UK, Australia, South Africa, um, and in small rural towns in America who will, who are probably thinking to themselves, I don't have the funds to do that. Um, even if they give me a scholarship, I can't do that. I can't afford therapy. So for those parents, what can they do to help their kids? Is there a good book on selective mutism or like a guide? There is. Um, I believe it's called the Selective Mutism Resource Manual by uh, Dr. Amy Koderba. That one is my favorite for um, just getting the knowledge, the depth of knowledge of what SM is, how to treat it, what effective exposures look like, how to make exposure ladders very gradual. I feel like that's often a problem that we have. We see, like you said, we see the starting line, we see the finish line. Well, there's no reason why my, can't, my kid can't just jump from start to finish kind of thing. So she goes through all of that in depth. And there's also a parent field guide as well. And I don't know if I gave you that link, but we should definitely provide that. And that actually has visuals, picture visuals of this is a reward chart. Here's a fun race car track that you can use in school. And this is the game that will connect with it. So lots of ideas. It goes through a case study of a little girl named Anna um, and the journey that her mom walked through several years ago in getting help for her child with SM because like many people in rural areas, she didn't have anyone to help her. Yeah, that's a great resource because if people can at least get their hands on that book yes. and um, you know learn what, what would be really helpful from somebody who knows what they're talking about. Um, they can do it themselves. You know, if that's the worst case scenario, it's something much better than nothing. So yeah. 
Yeah, I'll get that resource from you and I'll leave links below as well. So for those that are not, you know, they're listening in their car and they're not going to look at my links, where is the best starting place to go to get all these resources? So I really like the SMART Center. It's the Selective Mutism Anxiety Research Treatment um, Center from Pennsylvania. They have just a tab on their page and it says resources and they have everything from you know, teachers to the SM guide. What is SM? It's an 18 page little pamphlet type thing. And I like to include those with my son's teachers. Um, when we take him to like a VBS type thing, just for, these are things that could happen. He's actually doing very well right now. These are things that could happen. And so here are just, you know, five key points of relieving anxiety, the do's and don'ts basically is what we try to include with that. And so um, the smart center has a very good just resource resource page there for everything. They, oh, that's good. Yeah. They include like existing or not existing comor comorbid diagnoses with there. So you're not like, ah, my kid has this and this and this and this. It's pretty typical for kids with SM to have a lot of overlapping spectrum traits. Yeah. So that's in there. They've done a lot of studies side by side with LaSalle University. LaSalle. Um, and so all of that information is just in one condensed place, resources tab. CMI also has a pretty good website. Um, and I also like Anxiety BC. I can't remember if I sent you that. It gives a really good visual of the negative reinforcement cycle of anxiety. So, and that, that was what gave my husband and I the visual of like, oh yeah, we are totally completing this cycle every time that we say he's shy. That makes him feel better. Yeah. That makes us feel better. So that was another good resource. Oh yeah. Well, send that to me and I'll add it. I'll just have like a lot of links. So the Smart Center, do you happen to know what their website is? Is it smartcenter.org? I don't know what their website is off the top of my head. That's okay. I will, um, I will look it up and yeah. then when I record my goodbyes, I will add that and it will act, it will be like seamless. Yes. Yes. That's <laughs> definitely my favorite resource though, because I just have the resource tab. Boom. It's right there. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this. This is good information to, to disseminate and, and let people know. I'm happy to get this message out because there's nothing out there like that. All right. Well, thank you for being part of the voice that speaks for kids with SM. Yeah, you too. Well, I hope you found that interesting. If you are raising a child with selective mutism or you suspect you are, she gave plenty of places to start. So a couple of websites, and I will leave all the links uh, in the show notes if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, and I will also leave it in the notes on my website if you're watching on my website or listening on my website and on my YouTube channel. So I'll have you covered. But if you're in your car and you're just like, what are the links? You can go to selectivemutism.org. That's a good place to start. Uh, Patsy gave me tons of links that I will leave, but a lot of them start out at selectivemutism.org. There's also selectivemutismcenter.org. She talked a lot about the SMART Center, and at the end of our interview, neither of us knew what the actual website was for the SMART Center. And so magically, in between talking to her and talking to you right now, I have found it. So selectivemutismcenter.org is the Smart Center website. Very cool website. I had not been on here before, so I am learning like you are. And it looks like they actually even have a mini camp right now for kids, a three-day weekend for you and your child. How incredibly cool is that? They need to do more stuff like that for OCD as well. So check out Smart Center, and you can find those resources in the links below. 
So if you're enjoying the podcast, please don't forget to hit a star on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcast. That really helps give back when you rate the show. If you are feeling like you have a little extra time and you have something to say, I really appreciate it when people leave their comments and write a review for the show. And to show my gratitude and my appreciation, I always like to end my show reading one of them. So Saba Bro wrote a gift. This podcast, as well as Dr. Daniel's YouTube channel, are a gift to society. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for leaving the review. I really appreciate it. I'm not a doctor. I'm actually a clinical social worker, just to be very specific, but I do appreciate the review and I appreciate you supporting the podcast. That is very awesome. So if you have something nice or kind that you want to share, maybe I'll be reading your review next time. So I hope you find the sparkle in everything you do. I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. When I first discovered Natasha, I was in a desperate place with my son and his anxiety was getting worse and we had tried counseling and it was not going well. Natasha gave us practical tools. She wasn't like the books that we had read that were, you know, you have three kids, but somehow you can magically spend 10 hours a day on your one anxious kid and just, you know, life is great for the other two. She's helped me understand OCD on a level that no therapist I have come across seems to understand. Natasha had practical real-life advice that we started implementing the day that we listened to them. Not only did it help with our son's anxiety, it helped my husband and I recognize um, the anxiety that we had in our parenting that was actually contributing to our children's anxiety. Her tools are, I mean, life-changing. She has been amazing, and I'm so thankful for the work that she provides to all of us who have children um, who battle anxiety and OCD. It is so exciting to see him about a year later just thriving in school. She really has guided us the whole way, and without her, our lives would be very different. We're very grateful. My husband and I are forever grateful to Natasha Daniels for helping us to figure out where to even start with anxiety. If you have a child with anxiety or OCD, she is your go-to woman. Parenting a child with anxiety is not easy, and sometimes it feels hopeless. And um, in a desperate time in my journey with my son, I started searching the internet and found Natasha Daniels. She has been a lifesaver. Her resources have given me hope. They've given me tools and support, and I I highly recommend her and her resources. They are phenomenal and they are some of the best resources you can find out there for anxiety and OCD. Hi, my name is Natasha Daniels and I understand what it's like to raise kids with anxiety and OCD. I'm doing it every single day. And I also know what it feels like to empower them, to give them the skills and tools to help themselves, to watch them blossom face their fears and become more than their anxiety and more than their OCD. And I want to do that for you as well. Join me in the AT Parenting Community, where I partner with you and walk alongside you in your journey, helping you getting to know your family and your child's particular needs and particular struggles. I'll help guide you and walk you through ways to empower your own kids and see success in your house. You will finally have someone in your corner who not only has the understanding of your struggle, but has the expertise and knowledge to help get you through it. 
You can find out more about the AT Parenting Community at atparentingcommunity.com or you can text all one word AT Parenting Community to 44222. Together we can do this. good and I hope that I'll be like her. I have had OCD for over five years. I have trained my brain and you can do the same thing.